Foundation. I'm Michelle Cordero. And I'm Emily Vanderbush. And this is Mass Ave. Just last month, for the first time ever, Australian lifeguards used a drone aircraft to rescue two young swimmers trapped in dangerous swells half a mile offshore. When the lifeguard operating the drone heard that help was needed, he piloted the drone to the swimmer's location and dropped down a rescue pod that inflated when it hit the water, allowing the swimmers to get back to the beach safely. Perhaps the only thing more extraordinary than the rescue itself, which by the way was executed in just 70 seconds, way faster than a human lifeguard could have gotten there, was that the drone was unveiled to the public just that morning. Not bad for your first day on the job. For years, analysts and advocates have talked about the revolutionary potential of these type of drones. So what's the holdup? This week, we talk with Jason Sneed, a policy analyst in Heritage's Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, who's done extensive research on drones and the rules and regulations that come with them. Jason recently wrote an op-ed making the case that it's time to let these revolutionary aircraft soar. What he wrote inspired today's episode. Hi, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start at a really basic level. Let's say that this really cool drone that I ordered on Amazon that comes with a camera, it was about 100 bucks. it just arrived. And I can't wait to get outside because I want to take some aerial shots of my home. What are the rules around this? What do I need to know? Well, it's a pretty natural impulse if you just ordered something that you think of as a toy to want to get out and play with it immediately, uh, particularly if you're a young kid on Christmas morning. But the Federal Aviation Administration actually has a fairly substantial stake in how you can actually get your drone flying. And there are two main ways that you can actually uh, start the process of flying. One is you can say that you're flying as a a hobbyist or you're flying for pure recreation. And there are, are actually categories written into federal law that tell what you have to do in order to prove that, one of which is you have to be a member of a hobby flying organization like the Academy of Model Aeronautics. If you're not, then you have to abide by what are known as the Part 107 regulations. And they're called that because that's where they're written into the Code of Federal Regulations, 14 CFR Part 107. And what that says is if you are uh, 16 years old, you can pass an FAA knowledge test and you pass a background test administered by the TSA, then you can get a remote pilot certificate. And that allows you to fly within the the, the very narrow confines that the FAA allows you to, but then you can fly your drone. Can you go online to fill out these registration certifications? You have to take the test in person for the most part. Um, and uh, Like so, a driving test? Yeah. it's. I don't know that there's actually a component where you do have to demonstrate that you can operate the drone in the way that you have to be able to like parallel park, for example. Uh, but uh, you Yet. can go on, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can go on to the uh, FAA website. They have all the details about uh, what the test entails and, and how you can take it. Now, is this recent law? Has it changed over time? It's changed quite a bit, actually. There's been a, a sea change, really, in the way that this has been handled. The Part 107 regulations that I just talked about were put into effect at the end of 2016, so those are quite recent. Before that, the position, the default position of the federal government was actually, believe it or not, that commercial drone operations in particular were not lawful unless you got a waiver, what was known as a Section 333 waiver. Um, again, called that because that's where it was written into the law. There's not very original 
original names in this. But um, uh, so that is a relatively recent change. And there are future changes that the FAA is anticipating. So this is going to be sort of an area of ongoing development. So you mentioned commercial drones. We know that both Amazon and Google have been exploring the use of drones to deliver packages ordered online. Is this happening yet? Well, in the United States right now, it's not happening. Uh, it is happening abroad. In fact, uh, just relatively recently, we saw the very first Amazon Prime Air package delivery. Uh, this is one of those exciting you know, areas where we anticipate the drones are going to make themselves felt in people's, in people's lives and, and actually begin to, develop, uh, to, to deliver some, some real benefits. But uh, unfortunately, the regulations don't permit that. Um, I, I mentioned before that there were some real restrictions if you're flying under Part 107. That means that you have to keep your drone within visual line of sight, so you can't fly it off in the distance, you can't fly it around a building, you have to be in direct control at all times, you can only fly during the daylight. And so it would be impossible for someone like Amazon or anybody else to deliver that kind of service with those kinds of restrictions. So outside of helping companies like Amazon and their customers, drones have been doing some really amazing things in the past five years or so. They can assist in things like disaster response, search and rescue missions, agriculture, infrastructure inspections, the list goes on and on. Jason, you've written about some of these things. We talked about the Australian rescue earlier in the show, but can you tell me about some of the other impressive things, UAVs, that's unmanned aerial vehicles have been doing. Yeah, they've actually been really uh, going above and beyond, no, no pun intended there. <laughs> they've been really going above and beyond just to prove the point that these things are as revolutionary, at least have the potential to be as revolutionary as we've been talking about for some time. Uh, you know, after the hurricanes that struck last year in, in Texas and in Florida and in Puerto Rico, we saw drones uh, being used for all manner of purposes. They were used to find people who were stranded. They were used to map disaster sites. Uh, in Puerto Rico, some cell phone companies actually used uh, what AT&T dubbed a flying cow, literally a cell site on, on wings that would just hover above an area uh, tethered to the ground so it could fly there. Uh, and it would deliver cell phone service to a huge area without having to build a replacement cell tower. So you can imagine in a, in a disaster situation, that cuts back on the time it takes to restore basic services considerably. And then, of course, you've also got basic infrastructure inspection that uh, in, in a disaster area is extremely difficult and dangerous work, uh, even under the best of circumstances. And drones really made it possible to expedite uh, uh, those uh, as well. And then just in terms of not specifically talking about disaster areas, we've been really fascinated with this company called Zipline, which is a California company that's been for several years now working in Rwanda in Africa to use drones to deliver medical supplies across great distances in a country that has some uh, logistical issues. And so they've been able to save lives by getting blood supplies and other medical supplies delivered in minutes where it would otherwise take hours or would be impossible. That's incredible. Yeah. Kind of like an aerial ambulance. Exactly. And you know that technology applied here in the U.S. would save lives as well. You can imagine, for example, someone gets into a really bad traffic accident and you need to get a medical, um, a medical device or medical supplies to them instantaneously almost. You could have whatever you need brought to you on the scene right away. So would you say then that the United States is being held back when it comes to drones? 
Well, it is being held back, unfortunately. The regulatory pace has picked up a little bit in recent years, but it's still moving. Really, it's it's a glacial pace that we're moving at. And that is having a chilling effect on the innovation that can take place here in the United States. You know, it's concerning for me when we see big titans of industry from the United States, like Google or Amazon, going overseas to test their, their drone technologies. Now, there is some cause for happiness because the administration has actually rolled out a pilot program that's designed to allow companies and, and, and city and state governments to work together to bring some of these services to the United States to test them so that we can get better data and see how these things actually function. And so we're starting to uh, to see that be brought into fruition now. But that's a that, that's really an ongoing development, something that we're, we're watching, but we'll have to see how that goes. Jason, why do we have these laws and regulations? What are the concerns? Well, there are a number of I think legitimate safety concerns that drones raise. You wouldn't want a drone, for example, flying in the way of a commercial airliner. If it uh, were to have a collision, you could certainly see people being rather concerned about the the, the difficulties there, the dangers there. Uh, so there are some safety concerns. There are also privacy concerns that need to be uh, considered in this as well. Unfortunately, to date, the position that the, the FAA has generally taken has been uh, an extremely cautious and precautionary one where they've sort of elevated some of these hypothetical harms to assume worse case scenarios and then clamp down on on industry and, and the development of our industry. What I'd prefer would be a regulatory approach that would get closer to what's known as permissionless innovation, basically welcoming new technologies onto the scene. There is some risk involved in that, obviously, and you want to mitigate that with with reasonable regulations and reasonable laws. But we don't want to, you know, in the name of protecting us from one of these hypothetical harms, actually cut off all of society from all the benefits that we've seen just in hurricane relief alone from drones. How do you do that, though? How do you find that right balance between protecting people and their, their safety and their privacy without trampling on constitutional rights and stifling innovation? Sounds, sounds pretty hard. <laughs> well, it, there, yeah, it's not going to be, unfortunately, a uh, you know, one-size-fits-all uh, one rule. But uh, you know, we live in a system which promotes uh, federalism. That's part of our constitutional framework, and we think that that's, that's the answer here. You need to get to a, a, a cooperative federalism model of drone regulation, one that allows for the FAA to play a really important role in preserving the safety of manned aviation and protecting the integrity of airspace over federal installations near airports, that sort of a thing, but also allows states and localities to set some reasonable restrictions on when and where drones can fly if you're talking about airspace close to the ground because we don't want, for example, I think most people would not want drones flying anywhere they want over their backyard looking at uh, people sunbathing next to the swimming pool or whatever it might be. So we need to get to that kind of a framework where uh, states and localities have a role to play here and, uh, and can be responsive to community demands, but also protect and preserve safety at the federal level so that we can you know, use these things responsibly. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Mass Ave. If you're interested in watching footage from the drone that rescued the swimmers in Australia or reading Jason's op-ed, you can find it in our show notes on heritage.org. And if you like today's podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to leave us a comment on Facebook or iTunes and let us know what you think. Be sure to tune in next week, where we will explain why military families deserve more choice in education. Mass Ave is produced by Michelle Cordero and Emily Vanderbilt, with editing by Thalia Rampersad. <laughs>